Today is Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday is also the first day of the Passion Week. Some of us know it as Holy Week. In other words, this is the week that Jesus, last week, which ends with Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, and which leads to Easter Sunday morning. What do you think of when you think of Palm Sunday? Synoptic Gospels portray in a different way. Today we open the Gospel of John, and his description of the day is very, very short, maybe two, three verses. But if we pay attention to John, who was very sensitive, oftentimes he will lean on the the shoulder and bosom of Jesus, and he calls himself one whom Jesus loved. He was an intimate friend. He was young man who followed Jesus so closely, and he seems to have just a much of sensitive heart, which gives us advantage to have a unique perspective on this passage, on this first Palm Sunday. So before we delve into the text itself, let's do a, a little overview of backdrop on first Palm Sunday. The first one, we need to remember that it was preceded by two events, and even the Gospel of John is intentional in sequential narrative that he does in chapter 11 and 12. Two events were Jesus' raising of Nazareth, his close friend, and this is the only time that Jesus literally wept for somebody, feeling the loss. Jesus wept. Nazareth was also brother of Mary and Martha. His siblings were, in, in a sense, that closest friend. When he needed fellowship, when he needed friendships, companionship, he would go to Bethany, to their house. We're familiar with Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening and interacting. Martha um, enthusiastically serve meal to eat and the place to, to rest for Jesus. But just imagine that. Everybody knew in your own town, in your own uh, neighborhood, somebody died. And it was apparent that he wasn't just close to death, but he really died to a point that you will smell the stench of death. And Jesus came and raised Lazarus. The, all the people who were there were moved and believed, and they were in awe, shocked still. 
And there's another uh, event followed by that, I mean, uh, following that Nazareth uh, being raised from the dead. It was the anointing of Jesus' feet by Mary with expensive, a pound of ointment, which was equivalent of a, a year's salary. Why was that? Not to be confused that this story and the synoptic gospel story about the similar stories are one, but it, which is different from the gospel of Luke. This was a woman who was notoriously known as a loose woman, maybe even prostitute, the sinner, which was different from this story. Mary was Martha's sister and the one that who sat at the feet of Jesus. Why was she doing this? When Mary saw Jesus coming over to Bethany and she couldn't, she couldn't hold back her gratitude, her devotion. She knew intimately Jesus' heart. And the, with the prompting of the Holy Spirit, her act of anointing Jesus' feet with anointment, ointment and the perfume. And the Jewish woman never let her hair down in the public place. Which, which becomes a shame. She would willingly did that to wash and to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair. One of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray his own master, commented sarcastically, critically, what a waste. We could have saved a lot of poor people with that kind of money. And Jesus said, live alone. Live her alone. She did that for my burial. So this is the incident that sits with that. And the second thing is it was amidst the heightened jealousy and the tension of the chief priests and the Pharisees against Jesus. And later on, in our, in our own text, they plot to kill Lazarus. Well, the point is very clear. When Jesus did this miracle, and everyone began to believe in and follow him, and they were threatened as a religious leaders, what do we do to, with the Jesus of Nazareth? We got to do something about it. Oh, we we cannot deny that the one that he raised from the dead. What's his name? Lazarus. He's walking around. Let's grab him and kill him. And chapter eleven, verse fifty-seven ends with this: They gave an order, public order, saying, "If anyone sees Jesus, let us know." Report to us so that we could arrest him. That's the tension. And thanks to John, we get to hear this, the 
undercurrent, intricate um, backdrop of the story. Number three, it was during the feast of the Passover. It was obviously more apparent thing. Uh, the Passover, Passover feast was one of the greatest and the biggest event of the year from all regions of Judea and even outside of Judea. The people, Jewish men, are required to come along with Jewish men. The families came. Jesus, even when he was in 12 years old, he came with his family. This is the time. The historians will tell us that Jerusalem attracted probably about 200,000 people during this time. Remind, be reminded by the fact that the old ancient town of Jerusalem from our modern standard was a little village, little town. Just imagine people packing in that streets of Jerusalem and everywhere were the people. On top of that, we also know that Jews were required to to be cleansed ceremonially, which required for them to come a few days earlier than Passover feast day, actual day. And it will happen a whole week of celebration, but they have to do the preparation uh, prior. And lastly, it was the first day of the Passion Week that led to the crucifixion of Jesus on Friday. And if you look at your Bible the most Bibles will have a subheadings, titles of the passage as a triumphal entry of Jesus. Jesus declaring kingship. But in the sense, with the lens that John gives us, we not only see Jesus declaring and triumphal entry, it is also tearful, troublesome entry. The question that we're asking this morning is, today is a Palm, Palm Sunday. In what way can we learn from, the, from this first Palm Sunday? Which we could apply into our lives for the coming week. As we anticipate and prepare for Good Friday and the celebration of Easter morning. The more I spend time just chewing on this passage, there are different angles, the different perspectives that John provides that other synoptic gospel writers do not provide. So we're going to actually take these three perspectives in this story and surrounding stories and ask questions about what can we learn? What is a key lesson? Here's the first lesson. From the perspective of the crowd, 
The lesson is enthusiasm based on wrong expectations from Jesus, meaning the Messiah, leads to fickle faith. Look at verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And verse, jumping to verse 17, we could get a little glimpse of who the crowd was. The crowd that had been with him when he, had, when he called Nazareth out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. And so the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you're gaining nothing? Look! The world has gone after him. There is not only just the one crowd. It's a mixture of three crowds here. Number one, it was the crowd that came all the way from other regions to Jerusalem for the keeping of and celebration of the Passover feast. And all these people coming in. And number two, it was the eyewitnesses from the Bethany. Bethany was about just two miles outside of Jerusalem. They're coming because they have seen the miracle. And they want to see more of it. And they couldn't keep their mouths shut. In spite of the fact that the Pharisees and the priests. The, the religious ruling leaders were threatening them. And number three, we see that the rest of the people are coming out of Jerusalem with palm branches, having heard two things. One is the popularity of Jesus, the miracles and signs of Jesus, the things that they could not believe their ears. But because the people are talking about it, the rumors arose their curiosity. And number two, not so secret plan of Pharisees and chief priests, because of order also too, the tension against and the plot against Jesus. They could not arrest right away because of the fear of the crowd, because of the popularity of Jesus. So they're thinking, man, there is a major clash going on. If there is anything to see, this might be the it. This might be it. You see that three crowds converging. But on the surface, it's a beautiful scene. Jesus riding on a donkey. And the people are having palm branches and waving and saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, palm trees in their culture and historically also too, was not just a 
palm tree to us. It would be equivalent of the Olympians or the, the soldiers who won the battle who are coming from the Middle East and coming into our town. We would have American flags waving to them. Palm branches were the nationalistic salute, greeting, hooray, for the coming king. And they used the terminologies that was set aside to hint for coming of the Messiah, coming of the king. The word Hosanna, in Hebrew, in Greek, and English is the same word, Hosanna. What does that mean? There are two, two meanings, of, meanings of that. The beginning, the original source of meaning is God save us. That was a prayer. But through the history of Israelites, God saved them so many times. In the Psalms, for example, Psalm 118 will cry out, Hosanna. They're quoting from Psalm 18, verse 25 to 26 here. Hosanna, it became... Save us, O God, to God saves. Salvation here from God. Hooray. God who saves became like that. So on the surface, this is a glorious hero coming into town. But if you look at that, the, the motives and the emotional state, what were they expecting? They expect a political king who would free them from the reign of Roman Empire. The restoration of the glorious Davidic kingdom. Maybe he, he's the one. If he could raise someone from the dead, if he could feed 5,000 men out of miracle. Maybe he is the one who would restore Israel, the chosen nation of God. You see, the problem is when we do not have clear vision of who Jesus really is, we expect wrong things. The same thing at Crossroad, we mentioned this over and over. When we think wrongly about God, and God becomes what we need in a useful God who could fix our lives and blesses our lives. Rather than the Bible that God describes in his own language, in his own depiction of himself as a sovereign God who has plan, sovereign plan, who calls each one of us to join in his salvation and his plan. So no wonder this crowd who dances and waves and even takes off their outer garment and put it, put it on, the, uh, on the ground so that Jesus can march on, on it. Within few days, this fickle crowd would turn to a mob who screams at the top of their lung at the prompting of Pharisees and the chief priests. Crucify him! 
Crucify him. Crucify him. Is it far from us? Not really. It's so easy. A Sunday morning, we gather together, sing the songs of praise, and we confess our Jesus as our Lord and our King as our love. And what happens in the middle of the weekdays? Is our heart fickle that we deny Jesus in a very subtle way, our workplaces, in our relationships? Enthusiasm, no matter how passionate that enthusiasm might be, if it's rooted in wrong views of God, wrong views of Jesus, will always lead us to fickle faith. So we need to turn to our own motives in following Jesus and not only when our friends are just encouraging and then our circumstances and, and the happenings in our lives are so all pointing to the positive things. And we are filled with tearful joys of enthusiasm and telling others we love Jesus. What about the time that when no one's around and you're way down with worries and distress? And picture, you know, Boy and Cindy, when they share their own struggles, the dark times of aloneness, the sense of what am I doing here? Am I making any difference? It not, it not only happens in, in the, the, the mission field out there, but it could happen in the middle of the night with your baby sitting in front of you and your sleepless night. Or at your work, you struggle, but you don't get to the point that you really like to. What do you say to God? When you're praying for your loved one's restoration of health, and it's not fast enough, or it digresses, actually, what do you say to Jesus? Do you still say, Hosanna, hooray, to go to the king who saves So one thing is clear. In this coming week, the Passion Week, we ought to be very careful not to become one of those dead fishes being washed away in the river. 
how do you know you're alive? The, the live fish only streams, uh, swims up, up against the current. The Passion Week for the religious current, it will be the ritualistic. You're still giving up something as if you're giving up something big. Actually, Jesus is the one who gave up everything. We're trying to remind ourselves not to get dull, that our heart becomes sensitive to the sin that Jesus died for, to the gratitude that we will never grow old, be so thankful, tearful like Mary for what he has done, that we do not deserve this. We are not entitled for forgiveness and freedom and the new life Jesus gives us. Here's a second lesson. From the perspective of the disciples, in summary, true understanding of Jesus is rooted in scripture guidance and spirit dependence. Get verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on the donkey's colt. Here, John is quoting from the Zechariah, Old Testament prophet, and made this comment about the picture of coming Messiah, the king coming. And it is daughter of Zion, basically. Zion meant the city of God. The, the Jerusalem was equivalent of the, the same word, Zion. So whenever you hear, you hear the Zion, you should think about people of God. So what's going on here? If it is king, if it's a Messiah, if it's a powerful, mighty warrior coming... He should be on the horse, white horse, with a big sword. The donkey simply present, represented peace. That his king is coming with peace, in peace. There is no sword in his hand. Although second coming, he will come on the white horse with the sword, with judgment. And there is no returning back again. But on this side, in this sense, it wasn't the political king who would restore the nation of Israel from the empire of Rome. It is the humble, suffering king who comes to lay his life as a ransom for many. The spiritual kingdom to be restored in Israel and beyond. Verse, verse 16, John gives us another insight. Were they aware of it? The answer is obviously not. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, meaning died, rose from the dead, and ascended, ascended to heaven, 
Then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. In other words, Holy Spirit brought this memory of scripture reading and memorization. And back in the days, and the normal person, average person, like none of the disciples actually, they have a scrolls in front of them. So many of them memorize. So we're going to hit on that t- today. One final stretch of scripture memory, memorization. We will actually extend that. I'll explain why. But some people memorize, and some people read, and they, they listen. And this is the moment they come to realization, like the, the, the disciples who are heading toward the Mass after the resurrection of Jesus. Their eyes are open. Wait a minute. This was written for about Jesus. This is what happened to Jesus. Same thing with Isaiah 53. They were reminded. For our healing, he was wounded. And his suffering was for our wholeness, our restoration. The suffering servant. What can we learn from this? And obviously, disciples were clueless on that day, so what's, what's going on? Jesus is, you know, riding on the donkey. And, you know, just picture the donkey, king coming on the donkey. It's just not really a glorious scene. It's like, and then, the, I, I don't know about so much about animals, but reading about the donkey, it's not easy to ride a donkey either. So, you know, going like this. There is a paradoxical meaning to it that people didn't see. We often forget to see. So my comfort, my words of encouragement for those of you who feel under the heavy weight of hardships and trials in your life right now, ask for this picture. God, let me see what's behind what I can see physically. Practically speaking, how will you spend this coming week? The TV will have a couple of religious uh, movies, rerun movies probably, and then the, the Hollywood will Advertise even more about the, the films like Noah or Son of God because of Easter's coming. What a timing. Marketing skills. But how will we learn from the disciples? If they didn't really memorize or spend time reading into scripture, it will be difficult to even realize something. 
So can I honestly just directly challenge you? Of course, keep doing what you're doing. But as you're doing, do you know that our need for to be mindful, that we need to go to Scripture, open up the passages about the Passion Week, read through it, meditate on it, And the quiet time list is actually designed for that, the whole week. Be mindful about that. And let's ask the Holy Spirit to soften our hearts. Not to become sentimental, emotional, but to become responsive to great love. That we will never take this for granted just because another time of Oh, what's the big deal? We're going through the same thing. No, Jesus loves you so much that he took the Calvary Road voluntarily on his own. Let's remember that. Number three lesson is actually from the perspective of Jesus himself. And it is interesting And I will summarize it this way. God's life in Christ is given to all who die to self and follow Christ on the way of the cross. The first of all, I think we need to remember what Jesus is doing in terms of this response. Verse 20. It's somewhat kind of obscure. For the modern reader, verse 20 says, Now among those who went up to the worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Huh? Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Master, teacher, Lord, they want to see you. They're Greeks. They're Gentiles. Came to see you. Oh, good. Let them see me. Come. No, that wasn't the response. The hour has come. What hour is he talking about? See, up until now, the Gospel of John has punctuated this expression, my time has not come yet. It's not my time yet. The hour has not come yet. But this is the first time Jesus will say, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be to be glorified. He referred to himself as the Son of Man, and the hour is for to be glorified. So, once again, when we look at the surface things, we might expect glorification of Jesus. This is a time that he gets glory. No, the pathway to glory is a way of the cross. He willingly take the suffering and crucifixion for And he explains why. But let me pull back here. 
Greeks here is not the people from Greece. Greece Greeks are the ones that who actually settled as the immigrants. And they are the ones that who were so-called the God-fearers. Gentiles who believed in the God of the Bible. And they wanted to see Jesus. So to Jesus, the Greeks were not just the Greeks, but they were the representation of Gentiles, which means for him, his ultimate mission to, to die on the cross for, as a ransom for many, the whole world, not just the, gen, not just the uh, Jews, but also Gentiles, and for you and me, the, the hour has come. And no wonder he continually says in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, pay attention, this is very important. Unless a green grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Obviously, he's talking about his own life. He's a righteous one who could go back to the Father all by himself, going to heaven. But instead of choosing that, he would die to, to bear much fruit. And he turns to his followers, verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You see, the paradox of God's sovereign plan of salvation is that, that God gives us new life through death, not improving our old life. And Jesus has done that and went ahead before us and he calls each one of us to follow his way, the way of the cross. What does that mean then? For some, in the back in the days when there's a persecution, it meant a physical death. For almost every single one of us, it meant to dying to our sinful nature, our wicked heart that we talked about last week, and to deny our self absorption and self-glorification, self-entitlement, to leave it at the cross and follow Jesus. It means to choose to die in order to really live. And Jesus still calls us to do the same thing. This is the gospel. The beginning of the gospel is actually at the cross. We gave up. We give up our life. We surrender ourselves. And in turn, we're imputed by Christ's life. And we live Christ's life. In another passage, Mark 8, 
34 to 35, he puts it this way. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross, take up his cross and follow me. Let's stop there. Just clarify one thing. The notorious misinterpretation of this passage is the cross is some kind of a hardship that you have to live with. Oh, my husband is my cross every day. (laughs) My son who doesn't listen to me is my cross every day. No, it doesn't mean that. It means the cross in the first century meant not hardship. It's just death. You're crucified. Meaning dying to yourself so that you say no to your selfish desire and say yes to the desire of the Holy Spirit, desires of God in your life. To repent from, turn away from your way, to say yes to God's way. Can we do this? There are two two different ways of doing this. One, one, the, initially, we are to surrender. Even this morning, our heart by decision, by commitment, to die to self. But every day, we are to choose to deny ourselves and practice following up on our commitment. I'm grateful for Andy, who saw the glimpse of God's call in their marital issues. We don't improve ourselves. We die to ourselves. We stop rationalizing our sins. We own it. We surrender our, our, ourselves to God. And I'm going to repeat myself again. Only those who have gone through the way of the cross know the joy on the other side of the cross. The far side of the cross is not only forgiveness, but the power God only can give us Give us over our sins, over our own enslavement. A.W. Tozer writes about the old cross and the new cross. It sounds like almost he's preaching to our generation. But this is so powerful. He, was, he has written this in probably 1940s. And listen to this. The old cross is a symbol of death. It stands for the abrupt, violent end of the human being. The man in Roman times who took, the, took up his cross and started down the road had already said goodbye to his friends. He was not coming back. He was not going out to have his life redirected. He was going out to have it ended. The cross made no compromise, modified nothing, spared nothing. It slew all of the men completely and for good. It did not try to keep on good terms with its victim. It struck swift and hard 
And when it had finished its work, the man was no more. That evangelism, which draws friendly parallels between the ways of God and the ways of men, is false to the Bible and cruel to the souls of the hearers. The faith of Christ does not parallel the world. It intersects it. In coming to Christ, we do not bring our life up onto a higher plane. We leave it at the cross. The grain of wheat must fall into the ground and die. God offers life, but not an improved old life. The life he offers is life out of death. Here's our application. The, the Easter's coming. And this week, just past few days, I've been experienced some heartache. I sickened to my stomach to read the American churches, mega churches, and different churches for the attraction of Easter Sunday service gives out iPads, big screen TVs, the, the Easter egg hunt uh, dropped from the, from the helicopter. And the cars, free cars. And this is almost like an unbelievable thing, right? Saturday Night Live will make up these stories and, you know, use it as a comedy. No, it is actually happening in this country. So listen and see from the perspective God gives us through this story and the sensitive eyes of John. What's going on right now is actually, from using A.W. Tozer's words, the church is trying to partner with the what's popular in the world things, entertainment things, the materialistic things. After all, they're going to come. I, I bet a lot of people will be drawn to that if they, they give free cars and iPads. I, I, I don't own iPad yet. I would love to have one. You know what it is? They will never experience the way of the cross there. Oh, lest we think that we are any better, we need to think about this. How do we approach this Passion Week and this Easter? If we are sufficient enough, self-sufficient enough, then nothing really shakes our lives in terms of sin and the eternal damnation and the hopelessness of the enslavement of the sin, the power of sin over us. We will not look to Christ and say, oh, save me. I leave everything at the cross. And this week is the week that we need to commit ourselves as a people of God. We choose to die to ourselves. We say no to the selfish desires and seemingly good improvements of our old 
selves. As a church, as individuals, we surrender our rights and privilege to you, Lord Jesus. That is the way of the cross. We might not experience new cars and new iPads, but we will experience new life. The kind of life that matters for eternity. Sisters and brothers, I call you to the good news of Christ today, this morning. We have Christ who is full of mercy. God who overflows with his love for us. Who was willing to offer his life free of charge to those anyone, to any people who's willing to choose to die to self and say yes to God. Would you say yes to God? And before that, would you say no to your self-pride? The kingdom of the self within your heart. May you sense the prompting of the Holy Spirit and voice of the Holy Spirit gently tugging your heart today. Let's pray. Oh God, we're so grateful for your scripture. Our numb heart Hearts were stirred this morning as you point to the way of the cross. We do want to bear much fruit and we do want to follow you, Lord Jesus, on that Calvary road. And we pray that, that you will take our hearts as we surrender them all and teach us to live out your life, new life, in this coming week. And as we invite our friends, would you remind us that what we are offering to them, inviting to them, is not the improvement or better of their old life, but the new life God, you gives us. You give us in Christ Jesus, by your sovereign grace and grace alone. So teach us to have a right type of excitement because of right type views and expectation on you. In your glory, we are truly satisfied. Turn our church to your heart this week. And as we meditate, as we share And as we celebrate on Good Friday and invite our friends to church on Sunday, Easter Sunday, may our joy be not of this world, but of the kingdom of God. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen.